Grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16. We are actually going to be covering chapters 16 and 17 this morning, but we're going to read at the outset verses 1 through 14 of 2 Samuel 16, and then I will pick up the rest in bits and pieces as uh, we move along. Second Samuel chapter 16 verses 1 through 14 says this, when David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what did you mean to do with these? And so Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you, that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. Now when David came to Baharim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shemai, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of the king David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also, Shemai said, thus when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all of his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite let him alone and let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, I'm sorry, that was verse 15. We'll stop there. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Gracious Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word, your kindness, your grace, your mercy to us this morning. Thank you for the confidence we have to come into your presence in the name of your son, to know we were received as your children, co-heirs with him. And Father, thank you for pouring out your spirit upon us. What a joy it is to know that you hear the pleas of your people, that you know our suffering, that you meet our every need in and through your son, Jesus Christ. Would you exalt him in our sight again this morning that we might be afreshed? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
we have a lot of text to cover today, and really in chapter 16, what we see and follow is the physical and spiritual descent of David from the Mount of Olives to east of the Jordan River. And we'll also, therefore, follow the ascent of Absalom into the very rooftop of the king's palace. So there's two movements here in 16 and 17. There's a movement from David on high to be made low, and a movement from Absalom on low to be made on high, and so two different paths, and we'll see at the very end of chapter 17 that they are the end of two very different paths as well. Let's jump right in. Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, we take out the passage that we just read, and we see here that David's descent is both physical and spiritual. We see that David's descent is both physical and spiritual. The chapter begins with David, again, moving from the summit of the Mount of Olives, which overlooks uh, Jerusalem on the east side, some 200 meters above, looking down upon Jerusalem. And David moves from those heights down to the depths of the Jordan line, some 1,000 meters below. But the physical descent depicts a spiritual descent, a descent of humiliation and dishonor due to David's transgressions back in chapter 11. And so the physical descent from the summit of the Mount of Olives to the plains of the Jordan, they they give us a concrete picture of an immaterial reality. And, And to see this more clearly, we've got to remember a couple things. First, we have to remember that David was exalted We've seen that time and time again throughout our study in 2 Samuel. We know this to be the case, that David was exalted, right? We see it very clearly in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12, where we read this. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. The Lord had chosen David, the last son of Jesse, a lowly shepherd, not even worth mentioning to the prophet Samuel among the sons, a man after God's own heart in Israel. So the Lord took David and established him as king over his people. He had been with him ever since, hadn't he? He'd given David victory wherever he went. Back in chapters 7 through 9, we reach the the spiritual summit of David's story. But as we've seen, David forgot that it was the Lord who established him. David forgot that it was the Lord who protected him in the wilderness as he fled from Saul. David forgot that the Lord provided for him throughout his days of persecution and exile. David forgot that he was prince and not king. That he was son and not father. And David allowed his heart to be exalted above his brother's despising the word of the Lord and in so doing, despising the Lord himself. And so we remember that David was exalted. And so David, though he has been exalted, now we see that David is being humbled. David is now being humbled. Anybody have that experience before? The Lord has lifted you up and you experience a humbling. His descent is not just physical. David's descent is spiritual. Though uh, through the physical descent, the Lord is showing David and he's showing us, the reader, the cost of his sin, the cost of our self-exaltation and rebellion. In fact, the cost of 
his sin is made even more clear through the two events that happen in this chapter. So we see David has been exalted, that he's been humbled, and now we're going to see how the cost of his sin is made clear through this. And stick with me on this point, okay? David is unjustly judged justly. That's the first event we see, okay? David is unjustly judged justly. Yes, you heard that correctly. He is unjustly judged justly when he encounters Shemai the Benjamite of the house of Saul. Shemai throws stones, flung dust, and cursed David and all who were with him, accusing him of having the blood of Saul and the house of Saul on his hands. And, and now listen, we the readers, when we read that, we know that the author of Samuel has gone to great lengths to show to us that, that David did not sanction or reward any of the deaths of Saul and his sons. Right? We, we know instead that David was innocent of any blood guilt associated with Saul's house. And so the judgment of Shimei is, is unjust, it's wrong, and it is evil. He is falsely condemning David here. It's a, it's a clear breaking of the commandment tells us that not to bear false witness to one's neighbor. He is also cursing, by the way, a ruler of God's people which was expressly prohibited in Exodus twenty two twenty eight. So Shemai is, is dead wrong in his false accusation and his maligning curse will eventually come back upon his own head when he's put to death at the beginning of 1 Kings. But, but David at this time refuses to stop him. Recognizing that though Shemai may have, have the wrong crime, he does not have the wrong verdict. David is guilty, and he knows that he is. Shammai is is not wrong that David is a man of blood, because we know that to be true. Not from the house of Saul, though, but from the house of Uriah. See, David seems to understand this when he tells Abishai to let Shammai hurl stones and curses, for this is from the Lord. Now notice, David doesn't say that Shammai is, is, is right or righteous, Quite the opposite. David explicitly says that Shammai is, is doing wrong. But David believes that the Lord has ordained this evil instrument as a rod of discipline against David's transgressions. In other words, what we have is what's common in the scriptures. It's, it's another instance of the Lord using the evil intentions of men to accomplish his righteous will. So David humbles himself, not to Shammai, but under the hand of God. David declares his only hope to be that the Lord might look upon his humble estate and repay him good for the cursing he's receiving today. In other words, David is entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. David understands it's far better to receive the temporary empty curses of men than to receive the eternal and full curse of God against David's transgressions. And if any doubts remain that this is the instrument of God's discipline against David, then it becomes abundantly clear by the end of chapter 16, where we go on to read the very record of the fulfillment of God's judgment declared against David in chapter 12. 
The betrayal and counsel of Ahithophel and the betrayal and rebellion of David's own son Absalom. This and these things, these are, these are the God-ordained consequences of David's transgressions. That's exactly what we see in the rest of chapter 16. We see this other event that reveals to us the cost of David's sin. It's the God-ordained fulfillment of what God had declared in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you're thinking, well, what did he declare in 2 Samuel chapter 12? Let me bring your attention back there. In verse 11 of 2 Samuel 12, it says, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Remember, this is the Lord Telling David what the punishment consequence for his sin is going to be. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. Now, what do we see in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 22? And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. See, David's descent is actually paralleled by Absalom's ascent. If you look at the second half of 2 Samuel 16, we, we really have two sections here. And there are various ways the author draws our attention to these two distinct sections. For instance, David encounters two Benjamites, followed by Absalom encountering two counselors. Both begin with deception. David moves from the summit of the Mount of Olives to the fort of Jordan in the wilderness. Absalom enters into Jerusalem and ascends to the very roof of the palace, ironically, where Absalom's father's trouble started back in chapter 11. And so just as David's ascent is both physical and spiritual, the same can be said about Absalom's ascent. Absalom's ascent is also both physical and spiritual. Absalom literally ascends to the highest place in all of Jerusalem. But this physical ascent depicts, again, a spiritual and material reality. So let's look at the heart of this Absalom character as we've seen it unveiled to us in the scriptures. Who is Absalom? Well, here's what we know about Absalom. Absalom is the consummate king of the nations. He is. When we think about second, 1 Samuel 8, right? We want a king like the king of the nations. This is Absalom. How do I know that? Well, back in chapter 14, we read in all of Israel, there is no one so much to be praised for his beauty or handsomeness as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, man, he was a looker. This guy, as they say, was foine with a Y in there. Not only that, but those same verses record this, that he had hair and a lot of it, heavy hair. They actually explain the, the weight of his hair. Happy birthday, Lance, by the way. Just... <laughs> now, you got to understand, in the Hebrew, there's actually a play between the word that depicts or talks about weight and the word that depicts glory and honor. These two words are closely related. And so here's Absalom and his honor and glory. He is the man. Absalom has an appearance of a king, we might say. So we move to chapter 15 and read verse 1 of 2 Samuel 15. and says, Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And you know what those 50 men would probably cry out? Here comes Absalom. 
He is the man. He flatters and he forces his way into the hearts of the men of Israel. And now we find him on the rooftop lying with ten of his father's concubines. If the physical descent of David reveals spiritual humbling, then this physical ascent of Absalom to the roof of his father's house reveals spiritual self-exaltation. Absalom depicts the autonomous will to power The superman who takes the kingdom of heaven by force. Absalom, we could say, is the quintessential son of Adam from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. All appearance, no heart. He's got the looks, but he doesn't have Yahweh. Don't lose sight of that, by the way. See, it's really easy for us to get wrapped up in the details of the events of the story itself as they unfold. But friends, as we've learned... Throughout the whole of the Bible up to this point, all that really matters is whether or not Yahweh is with you. And Absalom is without him. So Absalom is a consummate king of the nations, but Absalom is also self-appointed, not the Lord's anointed. Absalom is self-appointed. He's not the Lord's anointed. We have not read anywhere in the scriptures that the Lord had spoken to Absalom. That some prophet came secretly and anointed Absalom king. Nor have we read that the Lord tends to take the kingdom of David away and to give it to another. See, the point is, it doesn't matter how many hearts Absalom steals if his heart is not following the Lord of Israel. So Absalom is self-appointed. He's not the Lord's anointed. Absalom is the brawn, but there's another character in play here, and it is the man Ahithophel. Absalom is the brawn. Ahithophel, he's the brains. Ahithophel, if Absalom's the consummate king of the nations, Ahithophel is the, the consummate worldly wise man. He is the consummate worldly wise man. If you, you think about these two revealed here at the end of chapter 16, and you've got the power couple, the dream team. Absalom's got the looks, he's got the strengths, the charisma. He has flattery in his left hand and force in his right. So, so he's a hard man not to follow. Then you add the, the big brain of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is to Absalom what Spock is to Captain Kirk. That's the best I can come up with. The author states it loud and clear though in 2 Samuel chapter 16 verse 23 where it says this. Now the advice of Ahithophel which he gave in those days was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel both with David and with Absalom. Getting counsel from Ahithophel is like talking to God. Getting counsel from God himself. Now, now follow me. This really works in, in two ways. First, ironically, because Ahithophel's counsel does actually accomplish God's will. The judgment proclaimed against David in, in chapter 12 is accomplished. And so his counsel is not just like the word of God with no little irony. His counsel is being used by God to fulfill the will of God, which was declared to us earlier. Yet... To be clear, Ahithophel is not claiming to speak on behalf of God. Nor are we led to believe that he's striving to offer counsel that he believes is pleasing to the Lord. Make no mistake about it. This is worldly counsel. This is worldly wisdom, which which leads to the second way this statement works. The authors note there in verse 12 
implies that Ahithophel's counsel actually rivals the counsel of the Lord. It was as if it's like the counsel of the Lord, only it's not. God's will is indeed being done, but it's not being done out of obedience to the Lord, but it's being done despite the wicked rebellion of his people. Ahithophel's counsel is highly esteemed, which begs the question, who therefore is esteeming the Lord's counsel? Where is the David of old who inquired of the Lord? So in chapter 16, we've we've traced here two paths, two courses, two ways. I want us to look at those paths now. The, The first path is the path of humiliation, suffering, and repentance. That's the path of David. Path of humiliation, suffering, and repentance. David descends both physically and spiritually. Physically, he descends from the height of the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem to the depths of the Jordan River. Spiritually, David's sin has come home to roost, as sin always does. So David humbly receives what his Lord has brought to pass. And and I would argue here, friends, that this is a picture, this is a posture of true repentance. When all our deflecting and our defending is done, when we fall to our knees and agree with the Lord that we have sinned against him and he is just, that's when you have true repentance. I mean, just look closely at David's path. He allows the taunts that that, that penetrates him and you allow the taunts that penetrate David's ears to penetrate your own. Feel the stones of Shimei and the dust strike your own skin. Consider his loss of home, his loss of reputation, and his loved ones. Look closely at his path. This morning, the Lord invites us to join David's path of true repentance. And friends, hear me. True repentance agrees with the Lord that we have merited death by our sin. That we in ourselves bear dishonor and shame more than our earthly enemies even realize. In fact, when our earthly enemies, when they hurl insults to us and false accusations against us, we remember that even when their accusations are not true, we're worse than they know. If they only really knew, our sin is even greater than they think. We actually deserve more shame, not less. And so we bear it while looking to the one who will repay us for the cursing that falls upon us today. Why? Because in doing so, we're looking at the one who has repaid us good for the curse that has fallen upon his son. He's the true David, the son of God who came to take our place. Just think, friends, about how this passage prepares us for the true and better son of David. We must see there is only one who is humble, not because of his sin, but because of ours. You want to find your place in the story? I love doing this, don't you? I always, I always remember being raised, listening to Old Testament stories and thinking, man, I'm so David here. Man, I got to be a Daniel. I got to be a Joseph. Let's, let's go ahead. Let's find our place in the story. Where is it? If you've been here long enough, you should know. You know who you are in the story? Shammai. That's who you are. Nobody really wants to be a Shammai, do they? Don't really point that out much in Old Testament stories, but that's who we are. We are at enmity with God and his anointed. You and I were rebels against his will. We flung the insults, the stones, and the dust. 
rebelling against the God who loves us even so, sending his own son while we were at enmity with him in order to take our place. Off of the donkey, he came and took the place of Shimei so that his father looked upon him as though he was the one who had wrongly accused his neighbor. That he was the one who was cursing the Lord's anointed. It's almost beyond fathoming, isn't it? And why? So that we might be received by our Father with grace and peace. That we might know his love and be brought to repentance by the grace of God. Hearing the gospel, having our hearts changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Hearing with faith, being humble to repent and recognize God's law is true. That I'm condemned and I have no hope apart from Christ Jesus, my Lord and Savior. So we walk the path of repentance when we agree with God that our sins are severe and his punishment is just. Listen, beloved, this morning, I'm reminding us that this isn't an act we do in a moment in time. But but this, David's state here in 2 Samuel 16, it's actually a posture that we maintain throughout our wilderness wanderings. That we're constantly aware That though the world hurls insults at us of various kinds, as we trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he is with us. Friends, if you have not walked this path, but, but maybe you're here and you remain an Abishai, right? Determined to cut off the head of everyone who falsely accuses you. If your response to suffering is vengeful violence, then I invite you this morning to recognize that you are worse than you think. Your problem is you have an incurable disease. This morning, as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, you have, friend, but one hope of ever being cured. One hope of being forgiven by the God before whom someday you will stand. This morning, cry out and be saved. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first path we see. There is a second path, though. Then we'll conclude by looking at where these paths lead. The the second path is the path of pride, physical force, worldly wisdom, and trust in man. Path of pride, physical force, worldly wisdom, and trust in man. Of course, this path is depicted for us by Absalom and Ahithophel. In fact, the next two chapters foreshadow the end of all who walk this path. Ahithophel will hang from the end of a rope, and Absalom will hang from a tree. The moral of the story is not hard to discern, even if it's impossible, humanly speaking, apart from God's grace to apply to our lives. The moral is humility is the path to true exaltation, and self-exaltation is the path to true humility, that is, eternal destruction. These two paths in chapter 16 are going to lead to the two ends. We'll take them up now. I want us to look at the path of self-exaltation first, Absalom's path. The path of self-exaltation leads to destruction. In fact, if you look at chapter 17 now, the wise man will be destroyed. Ahithophel offers some really great counsel. In fact, I want you to read that with me in in chapter 17, uh, verse 1 through 4. Let's read it together. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, 
Now, now let me choose 12,000 men and I will rise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike only the king. Then I'll bring back all the people to you. And when all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. The saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. That's sound advice. Like, the dude's right. Strategically speaking, on just the horizontal plane, it's a sound strategy. Attack now while they're weary and discouraged. Then Ahithophel goes on to make another argument. Not only a strategic argument, but actually a political argument. You want just the head, right, Absalom? You you want David, right? Okay, well, let's kill David. Then, Then we'll bring back the people. We'll establish peace and unity. Again, sound advice. Not surprisingly, Ahithophel's advice and counsel seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Which is a subtle reminder that Absalom and Israel are doing what is right in their own eyes with no regard for what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But then along comes Hushai. Remember Hushai? For our purpose, we need to see, though, that the path that led to the rooftop and exaltation of Ahithophel ends somewhere else. Look where it ends in verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose, went home to his house, to his city, Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. You know, there's only two people in the entire Bible who hang themselves. Ahithophel and Judas. His counsel is rejected, which is a dishonor of unbearable magnitude. So Ahithophel does something that is the only thing for a man of worldly wisdom to do. He goes home, sets his house in order, and ends it. We, the readers, know that this horrible end is actually really an answer to David's prayer back in 2 Samuel 15, verse 31, where he prays, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Then in chapter 17, we read the good counsel of Ahithophel becomes foolishness to the foolish Absalom and the elders of Israel. And the author doesn't even leave us to have to make the connection there. He tells us in chapter 17, verse 14, where we read, For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel. Here we have David being humbled and exiled from Jerusalem. He will cross east over the Jordan, and yet the Lord defeats David's enemies. We're reminded as we read this of David's own words that the battle belongs to the Lord. Don't lose sight of this. But, but this is still the case. In fact, the battle belonging to the Lord is not dependent upon man believing in it. Did you know that? I'm reminded, I, I think, I want to say it's Elf, the Christmas movie, where, where, where Santa is depending on people having enough Christmas spirit and if they don't believe and his power wears off or whatever, I think that's the right movie. But, but friends, you realize the Lord doesn't work that way, right? Like, please tell me you know that. The battle belongs to the Lord when you know it and when you don't. Praise be to God. God is still God even when you don't recognize him as God. He's still sovereign even when you forget it. God is still at work to bring all things about the good of his people always and everywhere whether you doubt it or believe it. 
And here again, we're brought face to face with the reality that we struggle to see and believe. The battle does belong to the Lord. Because David, without bow or sword, shield or spear, horse or chariot, the Lord defeats Ahithophel and puts him to death for raising his hands against the Lord's anointed. We learn that the, the wise of this world will be destroyed, but we also will see that the strong will be destroyed as well. There's another end to that same path. The, the council of Hushai comes and it not only defeats the council of Ahithophel, but it also reveals the heart of Absalom. In fact, a, a comparison of the two men's counsel is very telling. Ahithophel's counsel is short and straightforward. He uses very little figurative language and prefers the first person. He says, I will arise, I will come upon, I will strike, and I will bring. Hushai, on the other hand, is long-winded. Don't even go there. <laughs> he uses lots of figurative language. Hushai prefers the second person, you, when he does Use the first person. It's always plural. We. He speaks to Absalom's pride. Oh, Absalom, gather all of Israel to you. He, he paints a picture for Absalom that Absalom just can't resist. He says in verse 11, Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you and that you go to battle in person. The Lord, through Hushai, uses Absalom's own weapons against him. Remember the weapons we looked at last week? Flattery and force? Just as Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel, so also his heart is swayed to follow the horrible advice of Hushai. Hushai begins with force stirring up fear in the heart of Absalom. Hey, hey, Absalom, listen, I, I heard Ahithophel, man, bless his heart, but you know your father is a mighty man, right? I mean, his, his men are, are mighty. I mean, you're going to come upon them and, and man, you tick them off. Like they're, they're enraged right now. You know your father, right, Absalom? He, he's a warrior, bro. He, he's an expert in war. He keeps using up this language, stirring up fear in Absalom's heart. He basically says, Absalom, if you pursue them right now, they are going to kick your tail. Then he has Absalom's attention. Absalom thinks, wow, well, you know what? I, I didn't picture it like that. That doesn't sound good. Now he's set up for flattery. Ah, oh, Absalom, here's what you should really do. Gather all of Israel. And Absalom can just picture it. All of Israel flanked in behind him. His hair's just flowing in the wind, right? Everyone's just distracted by his hair, but it doesn't matter because he has all of Israel with him and the battle's secured. And then he uses Absalom's other favorite tool, force. Oh, Absalom, we won't just kill David. We will kill every last man. And if they flee to a city, we'll go to that city and we'll pull it into the sea. We will destroy them. You can just see Absalom's like starting to drool, right? He's getting all fired up. He's like, yeah, let's do this. And I don't know if that was exactly what he's like, but, but, but he says that sounds good. And of course it does, right? Because who is Absalom? He's a, he's a consummate king of the nations, He's a violent, boastful man. And Hushai speaks right to his stony heart. Yeah, let's kill every last one of those. But in the end, as we'll actually see in a couple weeks, all the force at Absalom's disposal is utterly useless against the Lord's anointed. Absalom survives chapter 17. 
But the end of Absalom's path is already declared in verse 14. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. The end of his path is destruction. And church, this passage demands a response for us. Where does our trust lie? In the wisdom of men or the whole counsel of God? The other path revealed in chapter 17 does not lead to destruction, but blessing to life with God. We find this in chapter 17, verses 15 through 28. In fact, that's what we see next is if the path of of pride and self-exaltation leads to destruction, then the path of humble repentance leads to life. It's exactly what happens. The, The Lord offers his people a reminder of his ability to bring us home. In verses 15 through 22, there we read this account. And stop me if you've heard this before, pay attention. There, there's, there's two spies. They're waiting for word from Hushai, who is himself a spy from David. Hushai brings word. The son of Zadok and Abiathar are waiting for news that they might carry it to David. But they're spotted. So they're fleeing from their pursuers and they find refuge. A, a woman hides them in a well, covering it with grain. See, we, we would just read that and think, well, that's, that's good. It's nice that they recorded that and just keep on reading. But we should remember, I've read that before. This account of two spies that entered a land and were pursued by a king, but they eventually found refuge in the house of a woman who hid them on a roof under flax. And when the men came looking, she sent them on their way. But you remember that story? Her name was Rahab. Here, we have a a recounting of that. Why? Why are we encountering a similar story? Here's why. Because the Lord is reminding his people that even as he was faithful to his people as he brought them in, he remains faithful to lead them across the Jordan in the other direction. See, at the end of this, we'll see that it is better to be in the wilderness with Yahweh than in Jerusalem without him. But, but church, do we really believe that? I mean, let me ask you, do, do, do we understand that it doesn't matter whether your experience is wilderness or the rooftop palace of Jerusalem? What matters is, is Yahweh with you? Is the Lord with you? See, this is actually communicated in another way here in our passage. These two chapters end and begin with provision. Did you notice that? At the end of chapter 17, look what we read in verses 27 through 29. Now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim, that Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the people of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzali, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and Parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. The point's the same though. God who faithfully provided for Israel in the wilderness is with David once again providing for his people. The Lord is faithful in his provision. He is able to provide even in the midst of every struggle, trial, and tribulation we will face here on earth. 
He is able to provide all that we need. And here is, is this clear depiction before our eyes of the exalted Absalom. You see, reading this in our eyes, the temptation is to be like, oh man, I, I, would, I would rather be Absalom here. Look, we know the end of the story, so we would never say that. But as we look at it, the reality is in the flesh, who would you choose? The descent under the curse of Shimei as he throws stones and, and hurls his insults? Would you choose to arrive weary at the Jordan crossing over the promised land away from the city of the king? Is that what you would choose? No. Through the humbling of his people, they grow in their dependence upon him and they see his provision even in their trials. And yet, We constantly desire that which actually blinds us to our dependence upon God. Let me ask you, is there anyone hungry this morning? What's your prayer? Father, please relieve my suffering. Please listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray that. I'm saying, should we pray it so quickly? (laughs) Like, like, what if it would be better to be in the wilderness experiencing the kind provision of the Lord, knowing your dependence upon him and becoming more familiar with your weakness? Coming to understand that in the end, you are often tempted to place your faith in the wisdom of men, in the strength of men, in the comforts that we tend to surround ourselves with, and it's all fading. It's all vain. Like, what if we actually embraced our wilderness experience in such a way that we recognize it is the Lord who is at work in the midst of our trials and tribulations, constantly, faithfully providing for us as his people. That we might learn to pray, Lord, just take me wherever you will, but please let me know your abiding presence. Lead me to the rooftop of Jerusalem or east of the Jordan, but let me know your abiding presence. Let me never forget my complete and total dependence. Because it is better to be hungry, weary, and thirsty now in the wilderness than to be satisfied in the city of man without our King Jesus. May we always, always remember that. And friends, he doesn't waste an ounce of your suffering. Doesn't waste one bit of your trial, tribulation. None of it. He uses every ounce to draw his people close to him so they could see his faithful provision and they would recognize that all this world has to offer doesn't actually provide us with a whole lot of nothing. (laughs) But he has everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And he's worth giving every ounce of our lives to day by day, whether it be in the wilderness or in the palace. Amen. Would you stand as we close this morning? Gracious Father, I know there's there's so many here that are just, they're in the wilderness right now. They're facing, Lord, the, the difficulties and trials and tribulations of man. And Lord, would you help us in the midst of that to see your faithfulness? Lord, that you are drawing out a dependence upon you. You're taking away all our options, Lord. And in that, you're so good to do it. (laughs) 
You really are, Father, in taking away every idol that we might be tempted to find hope and rest and comfort in. And you are giving us just yourself and it is more than enough. And I pray that we'd recognize it in the midst of it. Pray that we recognize that as long as we are with you, then we have every reason to bring you praise and honor and glory. Lord, the reality is you know how much Absalom and Ahithophel we have left in us. How often we are tempted to look in horses and chariots and how often we're tempted to seek and prefer the counsel of men. How tempted we are to seek the rooftop of Jerusalem when you bid us to come know you better east of the Jordan. Please, Father, would you lead us wherever you will but help us to know your abiding presence. It's more than enough. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We come to the conclusion of our service, which is also our time of invitation. I, I pray the time of invitation is very clear to you. If you know yourself to be part of the family of God and you are currently in the wilderness, uh, would you know that the abiding presence of the Lord and would it be enough for you as you see him providing for you in all ways? You know, I often hear this when I counsel with people who are in a wilderness, so to speak. They say, I just don't know how people make it through things like this without the Lord. You ever heard that before? But but friends, have you ever thought that that maybe that's one of the reasons why you're in the wilderness? So that you would know that very truth and you would know the sufficiency of your Lord to cause you to walk for him in the most difficult of times? We we see that. I don't, I don't, I don't often hear people say, man, I've just had so much success recently. I just don't know how people deal with all this success if it wasn't for the Lord. No, it doesn't happen. Why? Because all that is just temptation for us to put our hope there. And our hope can't be there, friends, because it will fade away. Our hope must be in Christ. And so if that's you this morning, you're in the wilderness and you're just saying, I'm, a, I'm experiencing the Lord's presence and it's enough. Uh, help me to praise you, Father, in the midst of this, because I'm tempted not to. Friends, please share that testimony with a brother or sister and encourage them to pray for you constantly. I'm, I'm so glad that I already know that that's happening in our church, that we've got relationships and people who are actively praying for one another. But if, if you don't, or you feel like you just would love some more, please come forward and, and ask someone to pray over you in the midst of your, your valley, your wilderness right now. The Lord would reveal to you your abiding presence and it would be enough. But friends, maybe, maybe you're in a wilderness in life and you've got no hope and you're recognizing boy all this earth has to offer is fading and fleeting and I'm living for a purpose that just doesn't seem like a purpose but friends would you see and understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning that you were created for a purpose but it was not so you would have a comfortable life and bring honor and glory to yourself it was so that you would bring honor and glory to a creator God who loves you who created you and put his, created you in his image as we learned in VBS this week so that, uh, so that you could glorify and honor him as king. That, that you, in, in your, your manness, you have, you have rebelled against him. You've sinned against him and broken his law by not honoring him, instead honoring yourselves. And the penalty for that, according to the scriptures, is death, not just physical death, but eternal death separated from him without any ability on your own to get back to him. But because of his great love for you, he made a way. 
He sent his son Jesus, fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, the death he did not earn or deserve for you who did earn and deserve that very judgment from his father. And he bore it willingly so that you would receive his righteous standing as the righteous one. That the Lord, God the Father, could look upon those who are sinful and see them actually as righteous because they're covered under the blood and sacrifice of his very son. If that's never happened in your life, that you've never repented, therefore, because of this good news, turned away from your sin and away from you living for yourself and, and start living for God's glory and never believed in his finished work in, on the cross and trusted in his salvation to be sufficient for your your life, and friends, today is the day to receive the very gift of salvation that awaits you. Eternal life with Christ Jesus, a righteousness that you can never earn with your good works, a righteousness that can only be given to you based on the work of another. If you would put faith in that, trust in that, and give yourself to this wonderful gospel promise, then today you can know the assurance of salvation. You can know that you belong in the kingdom of heaven And when one day this world quickly fades away, when one day you are at death's door, you will have a peace that is insurpassable. I pray that for each and every one of you. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. All we ask is at the end of our service, there'll be people leaving, walking in and out. We will have a a set apart area right down front for you to pray with you, to minister to you, to love on you. We'll have men down front as well. You can grab many of our members by the hand and, and ask them more information about what it means to know Jesus. Friends, don't leave here today without knowing your only hope is Christ.